1: This third episode dedicated to Toxic Male Month, the cantankerous Catholic has Michael Voris as the guest. He really has some profound things to say about masculinity.
2: Hey, Michael Voris here, founder and CEO of Church Militant. Come on over to our website, churchmilitant.com, and get an honest view on all things inside and outside the church. We are the fastest growing Catholic media apostolate in the world, and we have one mission, and that is serving Catholics like you. We have daily discussion, commentary, and news to keep you informed. So what are you waiting for? Visit churchmilitant.com today.
1: Michael Voris is a longtime and loyal friend of the Cantankerous Catholic. He's been on the show many times before, and you can expect to find him here again in the future. In this episode for Toxic Mail Month, Michael addresses a lot of masculinity issues within the church. What makes Michael such an expert on this, and what many people don't know, is that while he was away from the Catholic Church for so many years and working in the secular television media as a news reporter, he was actually involved in homosexual activity himself. But his reversion was so complete that I just had to have him on the show for Toxic Mail Month. After all, who better to address the evils of the LGBT ideologies than a man who'd been there himself? Let's listen to this magnificent interview, then I'll be back with a few closing remarks. Six Pack Warriors, we're talking Catholic masculinity in every episode in June for Toxic Male Month. Today we have Michael Voris of Church Militant back with us. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Joe. Mr. Six-Pack, how are (laughs) you? Oh, I'm as happy as a tornado in a trailer park. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Michael, you're a media guy. You've been in the business for, what, about 30 years? Almost 40, actually. Almost 40 years. How does the mainstream media view authentic masculine men? It hates it. Uh, I'm sorry, they hate it.
2: The mainstream media can't stand authentic masculinity. Uh, there's a whole host of reasons why. Uh, but yeah, as a matter of fact, something, uh, uh, a little known uh, fact from the media world is that the number one, as in most members uh, trade association the media uh, media in general has all sorts of trade associations with it you know the National Association of Hispanic reporters and that that sort of type of thing the largest one hands down uh, is the uh, uh, National association of gay and lesbian journalists they may have changed their name now to you know make it transgender and 500 other things also but anyway that's what it is so You have the largest trade association in the national media is comprised of all sorts of
1: disordered males. I'm glad you brought up the perverts, because what's next? Gay Pride Month is in June. Correct. Uh, The church makes June the month of the Sacred Heart. Correct. Is this a diabolical attack on both the Sacred Heart and Catholic masculinity?
2: Well, I would even go farther than that to say yes, but I would say that, you know, in the, in the gay world, uh, the sort of large day on which uh, various things happen and, you know, gay bars are kind of at their height and everything is Sunday, actually. Many people would think that would be Friday and Saturday, but it's not. Sunday is the day uh, in the gay world for big bar life. Uh, and, the, uh, uh, and the other point that I would bring up is I think it's very funny funny uh that the uh uh, typifying of homosexuality is called pride when of course we know that's directly linked to the diabolical. so yes i think everywhere you sort of go along this continuum or probably better said in this environment everything is almost an ape of uh you know uh, catholicism and divinity
1: yeah i absolutely agree listen i've i've always been of the opinion that the best example of masculinity is jesus himself not jesus the warm fuzzy that modern christianity has created but jesus the incarnate word of god what do you think about that
2: yeah i think that's absolutely true I mean, of course you know jesus is the perfect man he's sinless uh so you know everything about him is unflawed uh not just sin, but all, everything that flows from sin, the concupiscence, the warped psychology, the wounded, uh, you know, interior little boy, however you want to talk about all that stuff. Uh, you know, psychologically speaking, he experiences none of that. He can't experience it because that's all a consequence of sin. So since he's sin free, sinless, less, he has no, uh, th- th- none of that is present in him. Uh, now, can we ever get to that model on our own? No, as you know, he's. He's talking just about salvation when St. Peter practically has a hissy fit in front of him and he's just preaching. And St. Peter's like, well, my gosh, Lord, who could be saved? And Jesus is like, well, you know, you kind of got that right. For you guys, it's impossible. You know, but with God, all things are possible. So can there be a, I mean, let's face it really from a Catholic point of view. What is the purpose of the Catholic religion? It is to fix all of that damage, sort of tip the scales back to putting us back to the way we are intended to be from the beginning, from you know the creation of you know the the race in the garden, and uh, you know and that's it. Lots of people are just sort of you know an, an analogy I use is you know you got to kind of go out into the desert. Not lots of people ever get back from the desert. They go out there and they die. Uh, other men, in particular, who don't like leaving the comfort of, well, I'm not going to say mom in the sense of their biological mothers, although we certainly see a lot of that today with young men still living in the basement. Uh, But, you know, wherever it is, they don't like leaving the comfort of, you know, that the feminine provides them. They won't embrace their masculinity and what it means, which, of course, is suffering. Uh, You know, it's not all suffering, of course, but it's suffering for the sake of the other. It's not some, some weird sadomasochistic suffering or uh, you know, or, or you know, g- going through any kind of like drama queen stuff. It's nothing like that. It's understanding <clears throat> that your role as a man is to protect. And in order to do that, you have to toughen up. There's you no know, two ways about it. You have to toughen up. You have to sacrifice. You have to do all of that. And that perfect model for that, talk about protecting, uh, the perfect model for that is our blessed Lord himself. So all of us on our own, certainly, and even with grace fall short of that, but those with grace, understand, well, at least that's what I'm supposed to be striving to, and hopefully during the course of your life, you make some progress toward it. After all, your entire salvation depends on it.
1: Absolutely. You know, genuine masculinity, especially as described by Paul in Ephesians 5 and 6, is not only under attack by the media and society, but I think it's also under attack in the church today. How do you feel?
2: I think it's mostly attack. Uh, under attack inside the church. Uh, it, you know, the the church and its uh, embrace of feminized masculinity or emasculated masculinity uh, has really been uh, the lead in what has happened in the culture, uh, you know, long before, long before, you know, there was gay this and gay that and pride the other and all of this. That sort of thing, not out in the open, But that sort of thing was already, had already insinuated itself into the church, into the religious, Uh, the religious houses of formation back in the 40s and the 50s, uh, the, uh, you know, various chanceries, the uh, seminaries, all of it hadn't, it hadn't become dominant yet, but it would soon become so. And that's why when you take a look at you know, the, the whole sort of sex abuse thing, you see it really, the homosexual sex abuse, you see it really starting to take off. The hockey stick kind of starts in the 60s and continues through. And, you know, you could produce somebody, you know, for example, like a Father James Martin, not to pick on him specifically, but, you know, he is sort of the poster boy for a lot of this. And, uh, you know, he, he, you know the that all of a sudden we've gone from, you know, the catechism says this to, The catechism is wrong. We have to welcome, you know, transsexual, you know, visibility day and go out and cheer. And now you've got Cardinal Marx in uh, Germany coming out saying things like, you know, homosexuality is not a sin. And, uh, you know, I have my own personal sexuality. Quite frankly, I I don't think anybody on earth would want to look at Reinhard Marx and think anything sexual. But anyway, he's he's the one who put it out there. So uh, you know, it's frankly, Cardinal, nobody cares you have a sexuality. We just presume it, and we get on with our lives. We don't need you to you know point a neon sign at it for us. (laughs) But uh, there's too much. uh, There's there's simply too much embrace of everything other than authentic masculinity within the church. And I think one of the key components of understanding masculinity is. Uh, you know, when a conflict arises, you have to address the conflict. And sometimes you have to go into conflict with somebody else. doesn't mean you beat them up and yell and scream and, like, burn down their house and, you know, kill their family and everything. But, you know, when there's a conflict, the conflict has to be resolved. And the sort of major trait right now in the church, in the cultures also, but I, I would posit that what is going on in the culture has gotten there because it has spilled over from the church So a lack of understanding of authentic masculinity first began in the church uh, when, you know, priests wouldn't in the 60s and the 70s wouldn't stand up and say what needed to be said. And you've got these pressing, um, uh, you know, these pressures trying to move in on the church from the outside. Well, the church offered no defense for it because, you know, you can't give what you don't have. And too many of the males, I won't say men, too many of the biological males in the church were already no longer men. So they refused to, uh, you know, resolve conflict. They just avoided it. And now you see it in spades. You know, that's it. You know, if you say anything kind of out of step or out kind of tone, the first thing is, oh, that's going to offend somebody. You know, I don't know if I can say this on your show or not, but who gives Absolutely. a damn? Absolutely. Yeah. Give, who gives a damn if <laughs> it's going to offend somebody? That's not the issue. The issue isn't is somebody offensive or something wrong. In the, you know, one of the Gospels this past week, if you went to traditional Latin masses, you know, gave offense. I mean, he caused division. Uh, I'm sorry, that was Saturday mass. Uh, first Saturday mass. He caused division. Of course you caused division. I mean, you say the truth, you're going to divide. You know, who cares if somebody's uncomfortable about it? But that's what this is all painted as now. And it's, it's, it's a complete, it's a complete pulling away from Jesus Christ as the model of manhood and retreating into some weird, uh anything but the truth uh a truthful understanding of masculinity
1: absolutely oh by the way cardinal mark certainly has the last uh proper last name doesn't he
2: yeah he certainly does i i i trip on that i i'm sitting on the side of the evening news set doing this interview and i trip on that when i'm over there plenty of times and actually i'm not sure that i actually trip on it i'm just I just legally trip on it, Reinhard versus Carl. But I think in every other way, I'm right.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, listen, this is the really most important question. Uh, you and I are always telling our audiences to do something. Signing petitions and sending letters to bishops isn't doing something. Those things just make people feel like they are doing something. Correct. That said... What do you think Catholic men should do to reassert their rightful roles uh, and Catholic masculinity back into the church?
2: Well, I think many, uh, I I think when you look across the panoply, as it were, of men who are still somehow males, who are somehow still associated with the church, um, uh, you know, seminarians, for example, how can you sit in seminary and not confront, you know, something that needs conf- confronting. And I understand that you're going to probably pay a price. You may get thrown out or, you know, get told you're rigid or this or that or delayed a year or whatever. Well, okay, then so be it. I mean, why would you learn conflict avoidance in seminary as, as a strategy when you're trying to talk about the truth. Well, I'll get better when I get to be a priest. I'll get better when I get to be a bishop. Uh, I mean, what are you going to Hope that you're going to be the Pope one day? Uh, so, you know, you know, but more to the point, uh, I, I will be forever mystified why a male will, sitting in church, just regular guy, you know, whatever, maybe he's a dad, maybe he's not, hears some nuttiness from the pulpit Or sees some irreverence, you know, on the part of the priest and refuses to go up and say something to that priest after mass. Why wouldn't he say something? Uh, you know, you can't certainly, you know, be afraid, oh, I'm going to get thrown out or something. There is a males today, Catholic males, young and old, need to take a really good hard look in the mirror and understand, wow, I am not really behaving like a man. It uh, doesn't Amen. mean go out and punch someone in the face, like, you know, be an idiot. But, you know, there it is, a, you know, the, the case of being a man is not be some, you know, you know, crazy out of control NFL, you know, defensive back who's just crazy and beats the hell out of women and, you know, whatever, or be some soft thing sitting on the couch. There is a bit of a spectrum there and you yeah. can fall at a different place on that spectrum and really hit like the sweet spot of masculinity. Which is go up and say what needs to be said. If people standing around don't like what you said, or all of a sudden they don't like you, again I'll say, who gives a damn? Literally, Absolutely. damn, as in damnation. These people need to hear the truth, and if you won't say it as a man well, you know, and you know it, well then, you know, I, I you know, you, <laughs> you care, you love yourself more than you love others. It's just that Absolutely.
1: simple. Absolutely, six pack warriors. We were cut a little bit uh, close on our time today with Michael, but. Mike, well, I want to say thank you very much for being on the show, and we look forward to having you back again soon.
2: I love it. appreciate it. appreciate everything you're doing, Joe. You, you get out there and, you know, you know <laughs> kick some derriere on this whole, uh, you know, stupid, you know, Pride Month garbage. It's ridiculous.
1: It's not pride. It's sin. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. We'll talk to you later. Michael is one Catholic layman you can always count on for Catholic Truth. The one thing that differentiates Michael from me is his eloquence in stating that truth. He's professionally trained in the television media, so he's always much more polished than this grizzled old street fighter. But we always sing from the same page, and neither of us fear the consequences of what we say and do. We're modern-day outlaws because Catholic truth has been outlawed by the media and the vast majority of the lavender bishops in the USCCB. I very strongly recommend that you become a premium member of Church Militant. You'll be able to hear a lot more from Michael, but others who work at Church Militant as well. My favorite premium content has always been Simon Rafe's Case Files, which you'll find a link to in my show notes. You'll also find a link to sign up for premium membership in my show notes. It's only 10 bucks a month. Mrs. Sixpack and I live on about $2,000 a month, and inflation is eating us alive. But we believe that premium membership to church militant is so important to our salvation with all the good things there that we'll give up our membership only if we ever have to choose between eating and our church militant membership. So go to cantankerouscatholic.com and click on this episode. Below the podcast player, you'll find my show notes. Look for and click the Church Militant links. While I'm at it, I'd like to give a big shout-out to my friends at Church Militant, the people I deal with on a regular basis. First, I'll say hello to Mary McCann, Michael's executive assistant. Hi, Mary! Then there's also Brad Eli and David Nussman, who have to deal with getting my pitiful articles up on the Church Militant website every week. Hey guys, all three of these wonderful people are vital cogs in the Church Militant wheel. While you're on my website, to click the Church Militant links, be sure and write your comments and questions below my show notes. Also remember to visit my swag page for your Toxic Mail Month coffee mugs and t-shirts. In the next Toxic Mail Month episode, we'll be hearing from two guys who've been on the show before, Bob Wilson and Brian Lee from the St. Paul Street Evangelization Apostolate. Don't miss it!
2: Hey, Simon Rayfair, Chief of Staff at Church Militant. Come on over to our website, churchmilitant.com. And get an honest view of all things going on inside and outside the church. We're the fastest growing Catholic media apostolate in the world, and we have one mission, and that is serving Catholics like you. We have daily discussion, commentary, and news to keep you informed. So what are you waiting for? Visit churchmilton.com today.
0: Now here's Joe Sixpack.
1: King St. Louis IX, for whom our Midwestern city of Missouri is named, was one of the most benevolent monarchs in all of history. Louis developed French royal justice, making the king the supreme judge of whom anyone could appeal as the final authority when challenging a conviction or civil judgment. He also banned the barbaric practice of trial by ordeal. Guided by the Church's moral and doctrinal teachings, he was the first to institute the legal concept of presumed innocence when someone was brought up on criminal charges. He also did all he could to relieve the suffering of the peasantry. He became the only king in Catholic France's history to become a canonized saint. Just like every saint, there was an impetus that led to his sanctity. For some saints, it was a particular hardship that led them on the road to sanctity. For others, it was an event of divine intervention at some point that made them seem chosen in some special way by heaven. But the impetus that led Louis to sainthood was the most common of starting points. His mother, Good Queen Blanche. Blanche began teaching her son to become a Christian leader when he was but five years old. Her greatest desire for Louis was to place Jesus Christ and his church first in all things. From the time Louis was old enough to understand what she was saying, Blanche would take Louis onto her lap and say to him, Louis, my precious son, I love you more than anyone in the world. No mother ever loved her son more than I love you. But I would rather see you dead at my feet a thousand times than to know that you had offended God with one mortal sin. Queen Blanche did indeed love her son with a perfect Christian mother's love. As all of us know, our parents love us. And we no doubt love our children as well. But in today's culture, I tend to think that we don't know how to love our children with a true love. And that's because we focus on the wrong things in our own lives. Rather than the focus in our lives being on God and His commandments as consistently taught for 2,000 years by His church, we allow ourselves to become focused on the lesser things life offers us. This makes us selfish and perverts our priorities. The proper priorities in life are God first, our children and spouse second, ourselves third and everything else coming last. But we don't think that way today. We don't think like Queen Blanche. We put ourselves first, many other things second, our children third, then God fits in on Sunday. There are all sorts of proofs for what I'm saying. When God is first, children don't end up living with one parent and only seeing the other on the weekends. When God is first, Families don't end up with staggering debt because they want all the things the world has to offer, which leads mothers to work outside the home and neglect the proper rearing of their children and the care of their homes and husbands. When God comes first, parents don't use artificial contraception, which is a grave violation of God's law and natural law. Families destroyed by divorce used to be rare in this country. One reason it was rare was because spouses understood before they married that Jesus said the bond of matrimony lasts until the death of a spouse. Another reason why marriages lasted was because people were much more mature and driven more by Christian principle than the superficial things that lead people to immature commitments. The proof of what I'm saying is in the fact that 50% of all marriages end in divorce, which equates to families being tossed away like a used paper napkin. Families where mothers work outside the home do so because the mom and dad lie to themselves that it takes two incomes to make it today. That's the lie my parents told themselves a lifetime ago. I was a typical child and wanted my mother at home because it's natural for a child to want to be with his mother while he grows up. It's very unnatural for a child to be reared only part-time by mom, and moms intuitively know that. I remember asking mom why she had to work, why she couldn't stay at home with me, and why I had to go to be with a babysitter. There weren't any daycare centers in my day. Mom told me the lie that it was so she and Dad could provide everything for me that they never had. She believed what she was saying, but it was a lie nonetheless. They were competing with everyone else around, and that was the truth of the matter. They wanted me dressed in better clothes than the other kids. They wanted to live in a nicer house than we really needed. They wanted to buy a new car every few years. They liked our annual vacations across the country to see and do new things. None of those things are essential to the proper rearing of children, though, and their choices made me grow up believing that material things are important enough to sacrifice all else in life that's good to acquire them. And that's how I lived my life. By the way, my parents ended up divorced when I was a young man and my sister was still living at home. Spouses who practice artificial contraception not only deny the importance of God in their lives, but they also send some horrible and hurtful messages to their children, even if the children never consciously recognize those messages. It took me many years to understand the message, but I got the message even as a child because of one accidental event. When I was about five years old, my mother was visiting with a group of her friends. I was the only child present, so I was entertaining myself in an adjacent room. I was a precocious child, so I understood most of the adult conversation taking place, but not necessarily paying attention to it. But then I heard my mother jokingly say that I was an accident, that I wasn't planned. To my five-year-old mind, that equated to not being wanted. That singular overheard conversation altered the next 25 years of my life and destined me for a life of abandonment to mortal sin. My parents practiced artificial contraception. I got the message when I was five, but most kids get it only subliminally. When parents use artificial contraception, they're telling their kids that they aren't a welcome gift of God, but rather they're only yet another thing in their collection of things. Parents know this too, even if only subconsciously. The evidence is in the way they rear their children. How a child behaves in public is indicative of how the child behaves at home and is taught by the parents. The vast majority of children I see in public today are rowdy, loud, and ill-behaved, indulged with just about anything they want. Parents allow this because they feel guilt for not being there for their children, as they should, for not giving them what they truly need because they're too busy working to acquire things and paying bills they didn't have any business making in the first place. Families where God is the priority are families that stay together, no matter how tough things get in life and between mom and dad. Families who place God first have stay-at-home moms who give their children the nurturing they need, that is, a loving home where children are taught to be good, devout, and devoted Catholics. Families devoted to God welcome children as the gifts from Him they truly are and see material things as icing on the cake, not the cake itself. These types of families, families who love God first, practice NFP rather than send their children the message that they aren't nearly as important as things. If you want a life of total freedom, and I mean total freedom, to go where you want, live where you want without money worries, there's one skill that can give it to you. It's a skill so desired, so in demand, you could have an endless flow of money coming into your bank account every month and never leave your house. What kind of money am I talking about? Does six figures sound good to you? That's what some people who've discovered and mastered this skill are making without breaking a sweat. As for learning this skill, almost anybody can do it. It's a special kind of skill that once you've mastered it, it gives you the opportunity not only to earn as much money as you need, but from anywhere in the world for the rest of your life. I'll be brutally honest. There's simply no other way to gain total freedom and independence than learning a skill that rewards you tenfold. Just click the link in my show notes that says, here's your ticket to the good life to learn all about it. Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Maximilian Kolbe. He said, never be afraid of loving the Blessed Virgin too much. You can never love her more than Jesus did. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. When my sons were little boys, they were like all boys, rowdy, rambunctious, loud, and focused on having fun. Unlike most modern kids, who have moms and dads who prefer to be their kids' buddies rather than real parents, my sons had so much love and respect for me that they'd do everything they could to please me. Consequently, I almost never had to spank them for bad behavior. And when I did, I seldom had to spank them twice for the same offense. The way I normally punished the boys was to first have a father and son chat at one end of the house, then send the little offender to the other end of the house to retrieve the paddle I'd made for them. A walk that normally took less than a minute would sometimes take them long enough for me to have a cup of coffee. My working thesis was that anticipation of a spanking was worse than the spanking itself, which meant they were so upset over the coming punishment that I hardly did more than tap their bottoms with the paddle. Of course, you'd have thought I was killing them by the wailing that took place. However, once my number two son became stubborn and defiant about a prohibited behavior that no amount of punishment would break him. I'd spank and spank, but to no avail. Things had reached a point that I knew if I didn't break his stubborn pattern, I'd lose him forever to his own selfishness and defiance. So I decided something drastic had to be done. The next time he committed the prohibited offense, I sent him for the paddle. He walked purposefully to the other end of the house to get the paddle. When he returned with it, he handed it to me defiantly and bent over without ever being told to do so. His defiance this time actually startled me. While he was bent over, I said, son, I can't have this behavior any longer. I'm going to have to give the hardest, most severe spanking I've ever given. Then I drew back my arm for the first swing. The force of my swing was so swift and powerful that it could be heard in the air. When the first blow landed with a loud snap, my bent-over son jerked and shuddered. Then the second blow, and he jerked again, but not as badly. On the third swat, he realized that he wasn't being struck at all. As the fourth blow came, he looked around to see what was happening, and his little eyes widened in terror of what he saw. He watched the fifth swing of the paddle come down forcefully and brutally, on my leg. I was hitting myself on the leg with that paddle with all the strength I had. It was so hard, in fact, that blood began seeping through the slacks I was wearing. My son reacted immediately. He stood up straight and turned around. He threw himself between my leg and the paddle, hugging me tightly and crying in sobs. He shouted, Please, Daddy, stop. Stop it, Daddy. I'm sorry. I picked up my son and held him close waiting for his sobs to subside. Then I sat down with him on my lap. I spoke softly, saying, "'Son, what you did was wrong, "'and you deserved the most severe spanking I could give "'because you'd refuse to stop. "'Because I love you, "'I couldn't bring myself to spank you like that, "'so I took the punishment for you. "'My son never again committed that particular offense.'" What I did for my son is a tiny reflection of what Jesus did for all of us. He sacrificed himself on Calvary because he loves us too much to let us suffer eternity in hell. As long as we accept his sacrifice by making a good confession often and repenting of the sins we confess, we can one day live with him in heaven. However, forgiveness doesn't mean there's no punishment for the sins we commit. We still have to be punished for the sins we commit, and that can only be done in this life or in purgatory for our venial sins or forgiven mortal sins. Believe me, paying for the sins we commit while we're alive is much better than the punishments of purgatory. Make up your mind today, now, to begin going to confession every week, make a sincere resolution to avoid sins and their near occasions, and begin doing penances for your sins. They don't have to be big penances, but they need to be personally sacrificial.
0: This has been the Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.